0: welcome to the commentary magazine daily podcast today is friday july 2nd 2021 i'm john Podhoritz, the editor of commentary magazine with me as always associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john as the 4th of july approaches on sunday i happen to be listening this morning to all things a morning edition excuse me npr's flagship morning news show and they began their um their program with a the following ordinarily on the 4th of july or shows leading up to the 4th of july we have our npr correspondents read uh the declaration of independence but as we are uh, in a reckoning with our historical past and and the uh The problem's there, too. It is incumbent on us to be honest about what this document is like. It's full of hypocrisy. For example, uh, when they were drafting it, um, they took out a passage about Scotch rebels uh, because some of the... Uh, members of the Continental Congress were of Scotch descent and they didn't like the language but of course they, uh, they talked about all men being equal but uh, women were of course not equal and slaves were not equal and indigenous peoples were not equal document full of uh, hypocrisies and um, but also uh, also gave birth to our aspirations and so we're going to read it but we need to preface our reading of it with this argle-bargle-blather bargle, bullshit uh, that they uh, that they they played with. And um, listening to it as, as it came out, oh, there's also, and there's just a list of grievances and complaints against the British crown. It's mostly just a list of grievances and complaints against the British crown. So the one thing I want to say and then throw it to you guys is um, the thing about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution is... That um, reading this uh, anachronistically is one of the greatest historical injustices that has ever been done. Because the radicalism of this document uh, at the time, uh, the, the visionary radicalism of these and other you know, founders' documents cannot be overstated. Uh, and the fact that they did not contain within them proper and appropriate added modern attitudes towards certain types of things um, is one of is it is it is an unbelievable act. It's an act of histor of blindness not to appreciate that whatever was in there was such an advance on every piece of thinking or every governmental idea that was in place on the planet Earth in the 18th century, that one cannot even fathom uh, the fact that uh, this effort, A, succeeded, and B, created this system of government that, that contained within it, the very seeds of reform that would destroy the antediluvian conditions that we now complain about.
1: People who talk like this perceive themselves to be real sophisticates, <clears throat> but all they're doing is demonstrating their obscene parochialism. Um, the fact that this was a, a document drafted by committee, anybody who's ever documented, drafted, drafted a document by committee knows they end up being rather anodyne. That this was a pretty shockingly radical, as you said, egalitarian, enlightened, classically liberal document that revolutionized uh, the human the human social compact across the planet Earth. And it took a significant amount of negotiation to get there. Yeah, there were some passages that were dropped in order to, to get the unanimity that was needed to draft this document, but it was unanimously affirmed by the Continental Congress. And that took a lot of work. So it wasn't just a, a, a radical document. It was a document that was created and adopted through a process of negotiation and compromise. That is the American experiment's true genius. And, negotiation and, and compromise and collaboration in a way that has kept the experiment together for 245 years. And they have no understanding of it.
2: Well, they Much less also, appreciation for it. The, the a document by committee where they actually end the document by pledging to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. I mean, as you say, it's it's pretty rare for a political committee to not only state something so radical and and, and so clearly, but to basically say, I mean, it was, they were committing an act of treason and writing it. They put their signatures on it at, to, to say we're proud to say this is what we're doing. And then not backpedal at all i mean this is we we, thinking about this in terms of how modern politics is conducted where individual politicians do their performative thing and activists do their performative thing they've they've lost the meaning of this document i mean it's incredible
0: no one had ever said before we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal no one had ever said that before All men are created equal. It is now 245 years later, and the complaint is that it didn't say women? Fine. It was understood by the founders and by everybody that the use of the word men did not refer to males. And the language itself created the very conditions for the liberation of the slaves, the granting of the franchise to women, and the expansion of the franchise universally that is the point that is the opening of the document. The document features all this stuff about about you know Britain's unjust treatment and blah, blah, and then this whole fight over what the you know what um what it means to say you know the pursuit of happiness but all of that pales beside the fact that we seem to take it as self-evident that everybody on this planet accepted in seventeen seventy six. That all men were created equal, and nobody accepted this. I mean, philosophically, you know, deep thinkers uh, building on yeah, yeah, and building building on the thinking of the of the 150 years prior uh, certainly led to this, you know, blanket, unambiguous, uh, undismissible statement. But they didn't say it. No one had ever said this. And to look back in contempt by some, you know, Yale graduate who, you know, reports on climate change from Kansas City condescending to Thomas Jefferson, a genuinely complex and tragic uh, figure, uh, who's, you know, uh, whose assertion of these ideas and yet whose d- decision to live as though he, uh, in a way that did not entirely enshrine them marks him as one of these titanic, tragic, historic, monstrous, terrible, wonderful figures for the ages. And to- Jefferson had a lot of bad ideas as well as these, but, um, you know, these people incepted the greatest explosion of freedom in human history. And uh, we are now, uh, because a, a horrible, murderous cop killed a guy on a street in Minneapolis, uh, we are now acting as though the legacy of the founders is a, you know, is a, is a poison chalice.
2: Can I say something about that, the, the, the use of this word reckoning, because a reckoning is something that people come to of their own, usually because something horrible has happened and they have to sort of rethink the way they're living their lives or what they believe. But there's a weird way in which, you know, now we're more than a year past the the murder of George Floyd we're, we're told we should constantly be reckoning with things that actually really have nothing to do with George Floyd, right? I mean, there are, there are issues of justice and, and, and racial equity and whatnot that we can debate. But to turn this reckoning into everything, I, I feel like, John, there, there's a version of a woke tr- trigger warning that a lot of liberal media outlets give when they want to write about something about our founding, about our values, about this country's principles and ideals. Now you have to have this woke trigger warning like, well, this might sound really great, but just so you know, you have to understand that, that that not you know human rights and dignity that we're talking about is being inherited in every single human being. They don't really mean it. So let's talk about how wrong they were. I mean, there it's 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 very corrosive and it's wrong. And I really that this is the part that, that gets me the wreck there. You can't insist on a reckoning with people who've already thought through a lot of this stuff and still continue to be proud of the fact that this country created this document and this nation that although it is imperfect in many ways has done a great service to civilization
3: John when you brought this up initially I thought what you were going to say is that um, because we are in the midst of this um, enforced reckoning um, that we're not going to read it we're not going to read the documents at all um, which I suspect is, is where we're headed right I mean if, if 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 this year it's it can be read with the understanding um, that it's bad and cruel and um, small-minded, um, then then why read it at all? Right? Isn't isn't For that still audience. a sort of hangover?
1: For this audience, I think you're absolutely right, Abe. But I I'm more than welcome them ceding the Declaration of Independence to me. If that's the the direction you want to go in, that you have to anathematize everything that makes this country great, go for it. We had a poll out that came, came out yesterday, showed, you know, popularity of institutions. And Gallup does this from time to time. I don't know the pollster on this one. But one of the institutions that was the most popular were local police forces. You know who wasn't really popular? BLM. You know who wasn't really popular? Antifa. Hamas. Those people aren't very popular at all. Most people hate them. Shocking is the sort of audience that you pander to these very affluent, educated, white liberals who represent a tiny minority of the American populace. And if you want to give me all the goodness from this country, and I can claim it as my own and represent it proudly, hoist it over my shoulders while you crap all over my history, I will gladly welcome those circumstances.
0: Well, happy Independence Day, everybody. Well said, Noah. (laughs) And um let's uh let let me just uh talk briefly about our friend uh David Bonson, the Bonson group, uh and his newsletters, uh the Today dot com and dividendcafe.com. DCToday.com dot comes out daily, dividend cafe comes out weekly. Um and uh you know, particularly now uh we we just got the news that the um uh, employment figures for june uh fortunately uh were uh, wildly uh overshot what the estimates were eight hundred and sixty thousand job v- versus the expected seven hundred thousand uh a reversal of the previous two months where as as we remember the employment numbers were worse and gave gave rise to this proper anxiety and 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 disgust at the fact that the uh, coronavirus emergency relief bill had featured this all this money for unemployment insurance that was clearly keeping people out of the marketplace, um, because uh, because their uh, remuneration from the government uh, matched or even outdid what they might get uh, from working in the private sector. And if you want to know what the political consequences are going to be of a, of a of a of genuinely rising employment and the fact that people are coming back to work. And um, everything (laughs) that rises from that, which is unalloyed good news in the largest sense, but also creates all kinds of interesting cross-conflicts with the supply chain, with with various matters that are holding the economy back or causing problems there, you really should read DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com from our friends at the Bonson Group. $3 Three billion dollar financial services and management firm, um, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Uh, Noah, you wanted to talk about the uh, unfolding tragedy in Afghanistan, and uh, let's 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 go. Sure, l- allow me. I'm a little fired up about this one
1: because I have an, a take that seems to be counterintuitive to the political sophisticates who would you know, talk on NPR and tweet all day long. Um, and my counterintuitive take is that Americans don't like to lose a war. This seems to be a shocking proposition for people in the, uh, in the on the liberal end of uh, the spectrum. Today, we have seated Bagram Air Base in, the, in Afghanistan. Um, I don't think, and I've not heard any report that suggests we handed it over to Afghan forces. I didn't see any evidence that there was some kind of a ceremony. Um, which usually accompanies the uh, the seating of a, of a base that we've occupied for 20 years to local forces. We just kind of left. And Richard Engel at NBC News quotes a Taliban source, commander, telling him, quote, this is a result of our sacrifice that the U.S. finally agreed to vacate Bagram Air Brace. We heard that they had destroyed each and everything, which we couldn't take back, which they couldn't take back to America. Um, you know, essentially declaring victory. There is an assumption on the part of uh, people who make and share opinion in this country that everyone's going to love this. Voting public's just going to love it. Seems to be predicated to me on an understanding of where the American public was at when this conflict was a lot hotter than it is today. To even call it a conflict, I think, is a misnomer. But nevertheless, allow it. Um, And 2019, you had a poll that found only one third of Americans backed, quote, a rapid and orderly withdrawal of all troops from Afghanistan. One third. Last fall, another poll found that roughly the same amount, 34%, supported troop withdrawals, so long as they were buttressed by a counterterrorism agreement, an agreement with the Taliban to allow us to withdraw and to allow them to peacefully acclimate to a new order in which they participated in the government. That agreement did not materialize. Zal Khalilzad did not return in hand with the document that said, you know, peace in our time. Um, we are ceding this, this conflict, this country that we spent a trillion dollars on, that we have relationships with that we've developed uh, over the course of a generation to Taliban forces. And they will do a lot of things that will be broadcast back home that I don't think voters are going to like. I don't think Americans are going to watch this, watch the Taliban force women and girls back into the shadows, who torture the Americans or torture the Afghans who worked with American forces and couldn't get out in time. I don't think they're going to love it when they see American forces operating in Central Asia to conduct counter-terrorism operations insufficiently, without the sufficient reach and capacity that we had in Afghanistan in places like Pakistan. I don't think they're going to love it when they see Taliban uh, forces overrunning American institutions, diplomatic, military, or otherwise, and hoisting the, the trophies of, uh, of their victory over their heads, the instruments of America's decline. I don't think the public is going to love that. Now, are they going to head to the polls in 2022, 2024 to vote that way? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think so. But the far-reaching psychological implications of the fall of Saigon in 1975 were profound and had had implications well beyond 1975. They were evident in 1980. They were evident in 1984. Uh, And I don't think we've seen, we understand fully what this abject capitulation is going to mean. And that assumes that we're not back in Afghanistan at a time and place that is not of our choosing, which is precisely what happened in Iraq less than three years after an ill-advised full withdrawal. General Lloyd Austin Who is our current Secretary of Defense is quoted in the New York Times saying, "We've seen this movie before,
3: and we sure have, and we know how it ends." We saw this movie before in Afghanistan. I mean, after after we got the the Soviets out, Um, the the default position of the U.S. in Afghanistan before nine eleven is to ignore it, and is to is to you know it doesn't figure um, very largely in our you know geo strategic um understanding at all. Um we of course did get sucked back in in a very massive way um because of 911. Um that is of course what Americans will least like um if there is uh, another another terrorist um sort of uh theme park uh that 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 is erected in our absence. I mean, you know, we have a we have a
0: more recent example. Uh we had 64% of the country favoring a pullout from Iraq, I believe in 2011-20. Polling was like two-thirds favored a pullout from Iraq. Two Americans were kidnapped, tortured, and killed by ISIS. Two, or maybe three, were killed and tortured by ISIS in 2013. Three. And those numbers flipped. The idea that we should we should remove ourselves from the Middle East went from 36 uh, percent again to 64 percent against, and suddenly the political balance of power in the que- question of what we were supposed to do about the rise of ISIS uh, became um, something that uh, Barack Obama had to take seriously, and it became a talking point for. Donald Trump and, and the Republicans uh, afterwards about how just as Charlie Wilson, the representative who led the fight to uh, secure funding for the, for the Mujahideen uh, who were fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan said, you know, we, you know, we, we want to, we want a war or we, you know, we, we, we achieved our objective and then we effed up the end game. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, in Iraq, had we not, had but, we but not, in Iraq, had we, yeah,
1: just to you know to really flesh out the history there, that the the political will to reintroduce troops to Iraq was there after those beheadings, but the predicate to reintroduce troops was the prospect of genocidal disaster as the Iraqi security forces dissolved and ISIS took control of Mosul and half the north, and then surrounded the Yazidi population and threatened them with uh, annihilation. And that was what led Barack Obama to say, "Okay, I'll, I'll concede to the to the will of the public," otherwise he wouldn't have. And you can absolutely envision a situation in which you have a massacre or the prospect of a massacre at the hands of Taliban, or even the fall of uh, of our our embassy in in Kabul. I mean, right. this is the sort of thing that we're going to def- we will defend that the Kabul from advancing Taliban columns from the air. So the war won't end. In fact, we'll probably see more war as a result of this. And the idea that the public is just going to love this, to me, strikes me as absolutely solipsistic.
0: Well, I, I mean, we don't really... It, the interesting thing, and you've talked about it, Noah, and I, I. it's hard to talk about this, which is why the let's just get out of there uh, is such a successful argument. But it's the opportunity cost versus you know question, which is we're there now, it's not costing us very much, and it's really not very dangerous for the American forces that are there, and we're pulling out anyway. I mean, that that's the striking part, is that it's not as though the circumstances are, oh, my God, we're putting tens if not hundreds of thousands of Americans in harm's way, forcing them to fight in, a, in, a, in, a, in an endless conflict, You know, that uh, we we don't even know why we're still fighting it. Let's get them out of there. There's a small number of troops in Afghanistan. We actually know why they're there. They're not there actively fighting a war. They're there as a kind of, um, just as we had forces in, uh, have forces in Korea, just as we had forces in Europe, they're there to prevent the bad thing from happening. Um even if the present circumstances or even if the present circumstances aren't ideal. I mean it's not like they're, you know, protecting Western Europe or they're protecting a, you know, a growing and nascent democracy in, in, in South Korea, like Afghanistan is obviously a troubled
1: South South state. Korea, I'm sorry, was not a nascent democracy. South Korea no. was a military dictatorship. It was a
0: military dictatorship, but well, in the fifties and sixties, yeah, as the set as as our presence deepened over time. Um, you know, we are our, our presence in South Korea played a not inconsiderable role in the political development of the country, both economically and politically away from a dictatorship toward uh, toward greater freedom and toward economic liberty. So That's why but, this is so en- enraging to me. It is so historically ignorant and so
1: easy to demagogue while the Americans have to die in numbers sufficient for John Podhoretz to be satisfied, for Noah Rothman to be satisfied. You can demagogue this, you can pound the table so easily on this one, and it is such an unsophisticated way to approach the conduct of foreign affairs and foreign policy to the, such that every of the last four presidents who've campaigned on withdrawing from the world have expanded our footprint, more or less, um, and, and this doesn't seem to dawn on anybody who has a, a microphone you know, and, and, and commands the, the attention of people who, who, who make policy from late night comedy desks.
2: Well, there's, there's, it's strange, isn't it? Because the messaging is actually pretty simple. You're right, Noah, that both on the left and the right, there are plenty of people who argue constantly that America shouldn't be the world's policeman, right? Oh, it costs too much money, we should be spending that at home, oh, you know, America first, etc., etc. But there, why isn't there a single politician who can make the argument that we do have the resources, the uh, military capability, and the geostrategic need to be neighborhood watch in some dangerous neighborhoods in the world, right? That's not being the policeman. That's just what we have in Afghanistan right now, you know, hanging out there, a small force, someone to kind of keep eyes on what's going on and an ability to react uh, in a nimble fashion if need be. But nobody wants to make that argument. And the thing is, I trust that the American people, particularly those of us who have have relatives who've served in Afghanistan, they understand that that's that's a that's a legitimate way it's it's rather condescending that our political leaders when they talk about this and when the the technocratic elite who who think they know the most about foreign policy talk about this they think americans are stupid we're not stupid active
0: military leaders uh in the united states armed forces i bet if you took an anonymous survey of them Eighty five percent of them would say that this was a terrible mistake. And these are the people who have to write the letters to, you know, people in their uh, platoons, brigades, whatever, (laughs) when someone is killed by a roadside bomb or, you know, in an ambush or something like that. Um, uh, They believe it's worth the sacrifice. Joe Biden wants to be the guy who says, I got us out of Afghanistan. Um, or you know, it's 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 enough already. Where it's twenty years, it's enough already. I want them out by September eleventh, which itself is a kind of a grotesquerie, if you think about it, because it 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 it's it's essentially saying that the very the very day that led us to uh, commit our forces to Afghanistan, um, uh, owing to an attack on the United States, we are sort of we are using that day as a date certain on which we can say, well, our, our our time here is at an end. So it's not a place of our choosing. It's not a time of our choosing. It's a time of their choosing, uh, oddly enough. Um, and you're saying, okay, tw- it's 20 years later, you win. Congratulations. We said there were, we would see no distinction between the people who housed al-Qaeda and and defended and protected al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda itself. That was the doctrine uh, of 9-11, and now we're saying, okay, you get to you get to win now. We 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 kept you out for twenty years. So it was twenty years. Come back. Come back in. Did, Destroy some more statues. Uh immiserate more people. Force force girls into illiteracy. Please go right ahead.
2: Well, and nine eleven is also the date that galvanized an entire generation of young people, many of whom then enlisted as a result of what happened on that day and sacrificed for their country. And for him to choose that as the, you know, kind of, yeah, Biden's very bad, by the way, about choosing these dates for his policy announcements. I mean, we, we've talked about the July 4th, now we're all free from COVID issue. And I know Noah has a has something interesting to say about that later. But this is, this one really upset me. Um, because it, 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 in a way, tries to not exactly erase that sacrifice and the loss that many Americans have suffered who have uh, family members in the military, but it just it, it treats as just like a light switching on and off policy decision making that has no resonance. And I, I find that offensive. I find it offensive that they decided that 9 11 was the good bookend for this. But you know what? The, concerns- the audience
1: for that was in the United States. Which is not how you make foreign policy. Right. Well, foreign policy should not have a domestic audience.
3: But you know, what gets me and what really concerns me is that um, the argument that we're making here that I think is the right one, that um, there is a vital role for the U S to police or neighborhood watch, whatever you want to say, or, you know, to, to, to keep an eye um, on, on certain spots to make sure the bad things don't happen um, both to us, and to our allies and to others, um, that argument always came up against um, bad arguments, uh, or or whatever, or arguments. You know, arguments about how we're overextended, how we're cruel, how um, we're hypocritical, how the, the sacrifice isn't worth the gain. All of that 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 that's fine. And and there was there was there was a, an ongoing debate. Today, it seems as if sort of the whole issue belongs to another universe. You know, it's it's we're, we're not even um, plugged in to the to the post 9-11 sort of argument anymore as such. It, it, this, it's more that we're in this um, just we're just focusing on domestic concerns now. Um, yeah. The rest of the world doesn't concern us at all. We have no business even beginning to think about it. But there is a connection between the two, and it does
0: go go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about the Declaration of Independence. You remember one of the most mocked things said uh, in the 2000s was somebody asked John McCain how long he thought we would be in Iraq, and he said, well, I hope we'll be there for 100 years. And people said, oh, my God, was a warmonger. The whole point was that John McCain's view of the United States was that we were a force for good in the world and we would be doing Iraq a favor by being there for a hundred years in the same way that we did we have done the Korean Peninsula a favor by being there now for 70 years uh South Korea is is now one of the you know well it is a was a was a backward nightmarish you know uh, um, impoverished immiserated place and four generations later it is a wealthy, booming, prosperous, exporting um uh country that is you know has a democratic structure. It's it's all corrupt and there's probably it was not a bloodless
1: occupation and it was not, not well beloved by the South Korean pub- public.
0: Or by the American US soldiers world. were
1: hacked to death with axes.
0: Yeah. And or by is- yeah or by the American public. The uh, Korea was not a popular war. We got out of there in three years. Like I, you know Eisenhower ran in nineteen fifty two implicitly saying that he was going to end the war in korea so but the point is that we stayed there we 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 held the line um and because we are a force for good in the world and the problem now is that um is that the it is it is the opinion of the american elite that we are not a force for good in the world we and so therefore uh we're more like um A virus. We go around and do terrible things in places. This was a very left-wing idea in the 1970s in the world of you know political science and political thinking that the United States was, on balance, a bad player in the world. Even if we meant well, we were blundering and sloppy and and you know like like a like a doofus linebacker. You know, we were like uh, you know dirty linebackers who sort of meant well, but then broke you know, broke people's necks in, uh, you know, on, on the field by, by, by being overly violent, whatever. And this was, you know, when I was in college studying political science at the tail end of the 1970s, uh, this was a rising view after Vietnam. And after, you know, the, the fact that uh, most was assassinated and Arbenz was assassinated and DM was assassinated that we were, we were bad actors either either on purpose or just because we were blundering and sloppy and though that view changed as people saw the consequences of american defeat right we saw the we saw the boat people uh fleeing uh, more than a million people fleeing vietnam on leaky boats in order to get away from the totalitarian nightmare that were the reeducation camps and the stalinist uh you know the imposition. We saw the Cambodian Holocaust, the two and a half million people killed by the Khmer Rouge. We saw, you know, uh, people uh, people wised up about Cuba. People saw what happened in Nicaragua, and the general sense that you know our not being around was actually caused horrors untold and nightmares for the world, and that our adversaries were actually you know inhumane, soulless monsters. uh gained the upper hand, and then really gained the upper hand after 9 and then this opinion about how awful we were, just sort of at, almost like a fever because of all kinds of domestic political considerations and other things, took over the American liberal establishment. It was bad that we were going into Iraq. It was bad that we were in Iraq. Iraq was not just, and and it was increasingly bad that we were in Afghanistan. But there, were, there was liberal opinion that said that Afghanistan was a war crime. I mean, Susanna Heschel, the daughter of the uh, vaunted, uh, heroic, who, you know, sainted uh, Tzaddik uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, so, uh, in the wake of nine eleven, wanted women in America to wear burqas in solidarity with Afghan women because we were going in to, to destroy them. We were supposed to wear burqas to support the continuation of the regime of the Taliban.
1: But all of that is sort of a directionless hangover from the Cold War era, right? When anything the United States and the West did to advance and protect democracy was bad. From Angola to Cuba to Salvador Allende, Honduras, half a dozen other conflicts around the world. All of that was an expression of... Uh, supposedly in America, expression of American chauvinism and ruthless capitalism and what have you, because all these people were a bunch of communists.
0: Right. But the point is that that opinion uh, did not have uh, political strength. I mean, what had political strength in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, as the 60s went on, the 70s, had was Vietnam is a nightmare, like it's a quagmire we are stuck here we're not getting anything done people are dying this is terrible we should you know we're throwing good money after bad and we're destroying lives and you know it, this just hasn't worked right that was the that was the the non ideological reason that we ended up you know pulling out of pulling out of vietnam and then there was an ideological consequence which is that People had said, if the totalitarians take over, they're going to take over the way totalitarians did. And they did. They sent hundreds of thousands of people to re-education camps to brainwash them, to torment them, to torture them. And they escaped, you know? So we actually saw the real-world consequence of even that non-ideological, we better get out of here thing happen. Uh, The opinion that you're expressing was the opinion in political science departments in the 1970s and among the cognoscenti. But they had less sway. They did not, in fact, have control of the Democratic Party. Even if George McGovern wanted us to pull out and said, come home, America, that was much more isolationist than it was, uh, you know, openly anti-American. That message, not that he wasn't taking account or was hadn't been basically elevated to the nomination in 1972 by anti-American ideas on the left, which I think he was. But of course, he only got 37 percent of the vote in 1972 and Barack Obama, who said a lot of the same stuff, got 54% of the vote in 2008. The country had changed, or the way we thought about this had changed, and we're now in 2021, and much of liberal opinion believes America is bad, believes America is affirmatively
3: bad. And I I think there's a a newer element um, at play here um, that I think is um, perhaps the most frightening, um, which is that I, have, I think this is this is ironically because things are really so good uh actually, you know, as a matter of um how Americans live their lives, um that um there is this wishful fantasy that I think is quite popular that says we'll never have to deploy a significant number of troops anywhere ever again. That 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 belongs to another less enlightened um unreasonable, uh, time. So let's sort of wind down the remnants of that and sort of move on to this new glorious kind of sci-fi, uh, uh, uh peaceful, uh, epoch. And, you know, I, I, I would like that to be true. Um, but there's nothing in human history to suggest that that is true. And God help us when when the time does come, when we are challenged in such a way that we are really going to have to um, take upon us some significant act of military force.
0: If you told elite opinion
3: makers and sort of like the,
0: you know, the high ground of American, you know, establishment opinion in 1976, that 15 years later, 500,000 Americans would be deployed to the Middle East Uh, in a ground war to get saddam hussein out of kuwait they would have said you were insane i mean it the the idea was then we'd never we'd never fight another war uh because the stakes were too high the soviets was too dangerous and all this and we had just been through this crucible in vietnam and it was never going to happen and it was only 15 years later I mean, uh, you know, America. So yeah, uh, circumstances change, opinions alter themselves, and you know, there is an entire class of people, as 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 Christine said, who over the last twenty years uh, have been in the U.S. military, come home, and and have got and are are people who or are, are, are interested in public service. And have gotten involved in public service. I mean, we know about some of them because they're 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 on the left, and so they've been using it as a kind of you know as a tool uh, to get themselves elected by saying, "Hey, you can't attack me on on these matters." As a leftist, I'm a veteran. But there are people like Tom Cotton, you know, uh, Adam Kitzinger. I mean, there's a whole c- crew of people, both on the left and on the right, um, who did not spend their twenties, uh, you know. Uh, Voluntarily sacrificing themselves for their country to watch the country go, you know, isolationist um, and you know, and 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 anti patriotic and and so the the notion that this argument and, and as I think is the central point of this whole segment, uh, the idea that this is in the long run what what Joe Biden is doing here is in the long run not going to be destructive of liberal uh, ambitions when the world sees what its consequences are and when Americans see what its consequences are is very naive. Well, I mean, we're sort of talking about Vietnam
1: syndrome and that I think we can all look back on in retrospect as being wildly overinflated. When yeah. and Ronald Reagan was relatively contemptuous of it because we used force against Gaddafi, we used force against Panama, we used force in Grenada... And where you know where was the public outcry where was the backlash
0: there Just was the opposite the, was the opposite of a bump that's right the public was wildly supportive of all three um uh you know and 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 the 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 central problem for us is that it is very hard for us to conduct dispassionate long-range foreign policy the the passion that that that, that grips people in the in the immediate wake of a response uh, like the one that we did when the medical students were were taken in in grenada or or like uh, noriega in panama or like the iraq war what we have to do afterward uh we're not great at obviously i mean we we really aren't uh and that's where we are now um and that is, a, that is an issue uh, that will never change, um, in part because we are an idealistic country and in part because of the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, which do not admit of this notion, <laughs> are not part of the, you know, look, the world is a horrible place and terrible, terrible people are involved in it. And, you know, sometimes you have to make deals with the devil and sometimes you have to pick the lesser evil over the greater evil and all of that that was a george washington in his <clears throat> farewell address said you know we don't want these entangling you know we don't essentially want the diseases of europe to infect us and we will you know avoid entangling alliances well you know that was a noble ambition for a you know for a nascent uh, country and you know ag- once again it was only what 13 years after, after he delivered the, the farewell address that, uh, you know, that the Monroe Doctrine was spelled out that said, we view the entire, you know, the, our entire hemisphere as our sphere of influence. Like, you know, it was only 13 years later. So, you know, this is a very complicated, uh, matter and, uh, and American history tells us many things and they don't, that what they tell us is, uh, the pull out from afghanistan uh is a is a world historical mistake uh and and the people who advocated it will live to regret it we think you know what else i live to regret not getting tommy john underwear yes i went there that's my transition you're gonna regret not getting tommy john underwear the way we regret pulling out of afghanistan (laughs) um Apollo is Tommy John's newest and most advanced men's underwear yet with a performance-grade dry-release fabric blend that is exclusive to Tommy John. It's Tommy John's latest comfort innovation. You can't get it anywhere else. Someone just fainted uh, because they're so excited about Apollo men's underwear from Tommy John. That's the noise you just heard, I think, was Noah fainting dead away. It's proven to keep you drier and up to seven degrees cooler than regular cotton underwear. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Apollo Underwear Soft Supportive stretches for the perfect fit every day. It is available up to size 4XL. With over 15 million pairs sold, men across America love Tommy John Underwear. And all Tommy John Underwear comes with the best pair you'll ever wear. It's free guarantee. Tommy John's new Apollo Men's Underwear is high-end for your rear end, and you can't get them anywhere else. And yes, I said that too, but I didn't write that. Right now, get twenty percent off your first order at Tommyjohn.com slash commentary. Go to Tommyjohn.com slash commentary for twenty percent off. Tommyjohn.com slash commentary see site for details. Uh Noah, uh you uh you wanted to tell us about um a, a story in the New York Times that outraged you. Although I don't know why I had to add the that outraged you part. I'm not Since even remotely outraged. outraged okay, go I'm ahead. You're amused. you amused. Going. Go
1: ahead. I, I indeed. I am bemused. In fact, um, the headline in the New York Times is: "Is Biden declaring independence from the virus too soon?" The New York Times, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, writes um, that. President Joe Biden's plan to celebrate independence from the virus on the 4th of July, which has been very conspicuous because it is not tethered to anything resembling data around the virus, um, it is purely a political objective, um, is uh, is running into some unpleasant realities, among them the fact that less than half the country is fully vaccinated against the virus, much of many of whom, by the way, are young children who cannot get this vaccine because it is not approved for young children. Um, the, of the the population that is really vulnerable to this thing, well over uh, two thirds of them, in fact, more when you get to the uh, the older range, are fully vaccinated. Nevertheless, um, the this highly contagious Delta variant, you know, is out there and is threatening new outbreaks, and so it's really dangerous for Joe Biden to to make this declaration. And she quotes one professor who gave her the best poll quote in the universe. Um, for Dr. William Schaefer, who's an infectious disease expert at Vanderbilt University, who said, quote, we're still in the middle of this marathon, unquote. He adds that if Joe Biden, you know, declares victory too early, it is the it is the equivalent of, quote, unfurling the mission accomplished banner, which really tethers this whole conversation together because we're going right back <laughs> to the Iraq war. Um, so she's essentially the experts she's talking to allege that Joe Biden is declaring premature victory over this virus. And he will live to regret it because there's going to be another outbreak. There's going to be another, you know, another surge of infections and death and disease and famine and horror. And uh, Joe Biden needs to hunker down and be morose and Mm -hmm. uh, and taciturn and not celebrate anything because there's nothing to celebrate. Everything is horrible. And if he doesn't adopt this kind of posture, it's gonna give his Republican opponents the opportunity to, you know, hammer him over the over the, the the shoulders about it. But and I don't I don't see that happening. But it is possible, nevertheless, Joe Biden should declare victory over this virus. He should have declared victory over this virus a long time ago and abandoned his political timetable. You know, we were talking about this months ago, but it was Ron Klein who pointed to this, you know, a headline in the in, in I, th- I think the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, one of the other months ago saying that the, the administration's objective for July 4th was small, intimate family, backyard gatherings. And that was it. That was the best you could hope for. And I think it was back in April or something like that. And I think we reached that objective in April. I mean, that was the sort of thing that was happening at the time that he was talking about it. We're well beyond that now. And to pretend as, as though that's not the case for politics or for optics or for, you know, just to satisfy the New York Times, uh, seems to me uh, pretty
2: silly. Can I, can I just say that that the on the matter of Independence Day optics, the Biden administration has had several epic fails because I was going to say, I'll give you my 16 cents worth, uh, Noah, which you guys know what that means. But for those of our listeners who don't, the Biden administration in a, in a desperate attempt to tell you had, that inflation isn't happening and, and to distract you from gas prices this weekend when a lot of people will be on the roads <laughs> traveling is that, a can of baked beans is cheaper you're going to save 16 cents on uh, you know for your backyard barbecue and the items that they chose for their barbecue are so like there was a big bucket of ground beef there was, <laughs> that's been sauteed in a pan and it's so greased there was like a hideously uh, disgusting mass of baked beans doesn't look very good uh they had a couple of other things there too but the idea was that wow We've got 16 whole cents to run around with. And so we, of course, we're all joking about what we do with our 16 cents, some of which is not PG. So we're not going to talk about it here. But the idea that they're going to use that they're trying to use Independence Day to to trumpet their own policy uh, uh, proposals and their supposed successes. And it just fails. It fails on the uh, as Noah said about declaring victory over the COVID virus. It fails with regard to where where the economy is headed. And it it does, I'm bemused too, but I also think it speaks to a kind of uh, disappointing uh, administration policy when it comes to communicating with the American people about stuff we know about.
1: I know I'm monopolizing the mic, but just one real quick point on this. Uh, First of all, A, it's incredibly offensive to try to rebrand Independence Day as anything other than Independence Day. Two, this is an entirely intramural debate Democrats spent 18 months saying that this public health community, the safety conscious, safety obsessed public health community was nigh infallible, that their instincts were uh, beyond reproach and to criticize them was to attack science. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. The governing party has economic and political pur- uh, policy uh, and imperatives that do not comport with what this neurotic bureaucracy wants to see in place and they have to go to war with them. And it's gonna be lovely.
0: Okay, can we talk about the logic here? Because very quickly, uh, it's now seven months since uh since we've had the vaccines, and uh, I don't know, sixty four percent of Americans who are uh over eighteen have had at least one shot. Uh, the number of Americans who can get a shot, I think, has now reached fifty percent. Something like that. Really, I have had one shot or something like that. Um. So we're now at the point where everybody who hasn't gotten a shot is uh, pretty much deliberately deciding not to get a shot, and then we're told, "Oh no, p- people are alarmed at the you know the the uh, highly contagious uh, Delta variant." By the way, I, I was under the impression that COVID itself was highly contagious. You are not allowed to mention uh, the Delta variant without it being preceded homer uh homer style with the words highly contagious which is like the wine dark sea or fleet-footed mercury or fleet-footed hermes or whatever uh whatever those things are called in homeric poetry i can't remember the name of them the the idents that that precede the names um uh it's always highly contagious Uh, of course viruses are highly contagious period so i don't know what is it Just so incredibly. Anyway, I'm just saying, like, they're worried because in the South and places where people have, you know, uh, aren't majority vaccinated, it's now spreading and it's spreading and it's very dangerous. They're choosing to have it spread to them. Every single person in the United States who is eligible for a vaccine who is not getting a vaccine has now made a deliberate, conscious choice not to get the vaccine. We are not responsible for their behavior it is not a public health crime except yeah if they end up costing us a lot of money because they go into the hospital on ventilators the only argument that says this is you know he's claiming mission accomplished, and that's terrible is that because if it lingers it'll linger and then it'll mutate and then it'll mutate into something that will affect the vaccinated like that's that's the fear right the fear is not the Delta variant, the highly contagious Delta variant. That is not a moral concern of, of, any, of any of us for two reasons. One of which is, as I say, everybody who can get it should have gotten it or would have gotten it already. Um, and the population that is at risk that can't get vaccinated, almost nobody gets sick and dies from COVID among that population of people under the age of 12 or even under the age of 18 the number of americans who have died from covid under the age of 18 of whom there are 77 million in the united states remains under 400 out of 77 million they don't die from it some very at a very small number get very sick from it so it's bad and they sh- people they should get vaccinated when they can whatever it is not about the highly contagious delta variant it's about the gamma variant that doesn't exist yet, that supposedly will arise if we don't snuff out the delta variant, and therefore the entire country should remain shut down in some fashion in order to pre- prevent the conditions under which a mutated version of the delta variant might then attack the COVID vaccine, the COVID virus for which we are all against, which we are all vaccinated, that is apparently totally working against the Delta variant, which also means that the gamma variant will not necessarily elude the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. It could also be totally addressed by them. So the logic here is that we need to do this in order to prevent an outbreak of a viral uh, variant that hasn't happened yet, We are not morally obligated to do anything about the Delta variant. Anybody who gets sick from the Delta variant here on in, it's their fault. They did it to themselves by not getting the vaccine, period. So that's the problem. Okay, now I want to step back and read you guys a really brilliant email we got the other day from somebody who wants to remain anonymous because he is an academic, and doesn't want to get in trouble, which is understandable. Okay, um, he 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 says he wanted to talk to us about this. Our speculations regarding the passion for mask wearing in situations where science suggests it is unnecessary, which of course is the whole point of. What are you supposed to do if you're going to follow this guy from um, from Vanderbilt's advice? It was Vanderbilt, right, Noah? Um. If you're supposed to follow his advice, it basically means you're supposed to wear a mask and socially distance and stuff. There may be as many reasons for this as there are individuals, but for what it's worth, I'd like to suggest a master theory. The master theory, the master here is Freud. Observing that his patients had often fallen ill after suffering a bad twist of fate, Freud theorized that misfortune was often interpreted by individuals as comeuppance for their misbehavior or more often For the untoward fantasies, fantasies of which everyone, in Freud's view, is guilty, conscious or not. So he now wants to apply this to society as a whole. The misfortune is COVID. But rather than regard it as bad luck or someone else's failure to safely research viruses, a huge swath of people felt like the pandemic was, in some sense, the universe, God, the superego, or some blurry entity that resembles a bit of both, taking revenge on America for Donald Trump. Thus, the first narrative, once the series of COVID became clear, Trump was responsible. With the killing of George Floyd, the guilt could be more sharply defined, and lo and behold, it was America's original sin. Like the blood that Lady Macbeth cannot wash from her hands, prejudice was still with us. Obsessively washing our hands, covering our faces, placing a filter over our imperfectly redeemed speech, and putting a safe distance between the potential violence of our offending selves and theirs must have seemed like symptoms ready-made to exercise our demons or at least keep them at bay. This is not to say that wearing masks and bathing in antiseptic gel made no sense, at least before the vaccine or before we understood more about the virus, but the purposes these safety measures served as psychological ritual was too perfect to abandon even after the danger had passed. For many in the liberal elite, my community, for better or for worse, says the letter writer, to remove the mask is to suggest a complete cure, not just of COVID, but of the reason COVID struck in the first place, according to this Freudian theory, are racism, moral imperfection, and national selfishness and the waves of populism that Trump rode to the White House in 2016. It feels dangerous to take that mask off for some of us, although fully vaccinated, because we know that we are still guilty. Indeed, we become implicated in the nation's guilt precisely at the moment when we assert our freedom from it. I don't need to wear a mask or socially distance because i am not racist as it were have we learned nothing have we no shame no fear of the final judgment of covid the expectation that a variant will emerge to punish irresponsible red states for prematurely lifting their precautions is almost giddy among many of my colleagues i am reminded of jeremiah's strange enthusiasm for god's vengeance on those who do not heed his warning that's the prophet jeremiah I think this best explains the seeming hypocrisy around the George Floyd demonstrations. Demonstrators against racism were viewed on some level as heroic first responders addressing the root cause of the pandemic, the transgressive sin that had brought the plague to Jerusalem, Athens, America. They were our greatest hope for fending off the destruction of the city. I don't think any of this is conscious, nor is it universal Many folks simply like hiding their faces or enjoy the opportunity to make a public display of solidarity of which they will shortly be robbed. But for many around me, I suspect the, my analysis, or Freud's as I have imagined it, is the most credible explanation. Uh, that's the single best explanation for this thing that we have been trying to puzzle over for, for, for more than a year. Um, the, the, the moral recti- the, the, the The attachment of
3: a moral frame... To this public health response, it is, it is, and um, I, I love it because, in light of this discussion of the um, all-powerful, non-existent variant that is yet to come, um, that is a purely or mostly religious fear. That is like <clears throat> Judgment Day. That is that is Armageddon. There, there's will be this super supernatural godlike variant that will yeah
2: yeah uh, the the eschatology of COVID yes
3: (laughs) evade all our man-made attempts to 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 try to try to quell it
0: exactly now guys uh we're talking about uh, humor interactions here and you know where you have human interactions at the office and let me tell you about Bambi, because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries are not cheap. An average of 70 a year, Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding determinations... Bambi customizes your policies to fit your business and helps you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. I should say spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary uh so we're almost at an hour um anybody have any uh final uh fourth of july thoughts i don't yes, eat go celebrate
2: beef. celebrate and be proud of your country
0: yeah your and, and friends
2: yeah and no masks if you're vaccinated
0: <laughs> right uh so yes Celebrate! Be proud of your country. This is the greatest country on earth. This is the greatest country that ever was. This is the country that freed mankind uh, intellectually, morally, spiritually, um, and freed its own unfree. Uh, and now, of course, uh, everybody who has uh, who um, is the uh, incredibly uh, fortunate uh, recipient of of that legacy, so many of us uh, are 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 ungrateful for the for the inesimal bounty that we've got so for those of us who are grateful uh i think it we feel the need to express our gratitude even more profoundly because so f- so many people in our ambit um uh are so um appallingly lacking in that in that gratitude so thanks for listening. Have a wonderful holiday. We're not going to be here on Monday. We'll be back on Tuesday for Abe, Christine, and Noah, who will not be with us next week. So it'll be just Abe, Christine, and me and maybe some
3: guests. Keep the candle burning.